In business, there can be a tendency to label, categorize, and then make corresponding assumptions. This is very reasonable. In order to organize, it's necessary. One less than ideal aspect of this mentality is that certain responsibilities may be assumed to be relevant to only one title, team, or department. With that sort of thinking, the concept of communication tends to be more associated with marketing or sales. But the need to communicate well cuts across every area of a company. To serve clients, it's imperative. Clearly articulating shared goals between companies and their clients allows expectations to be set and then delivered. Even the most beautiful image can lose its luster by staring at it too long from the same perspective. It's a matter of adjusting the view to take in the whole picture. The same is true when getting a handle on how a company operates and communicates. In taking a step back, it's easier to assess the needs of the business and see where the tweaks are needed. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Eric Karakia, the SVP and GM of Digital Engagement Solutions at CSG, and Tim Vanderham, the CTO and SVP of Software at NCR Corporation, discuss the power of communication to serve clients and employees too. They also take a nuanced view of how creating transparency in the remote workflow must be managed to create avenues of clear correspondence that move work projects forward efficiently. Enjoy this episode. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have one of our special roundtables. We have Eric Karaskia. He is the SVP and GM at CSG for Digital Engagement Solutions. And Tim Vanderham, he's the CTO at NCR Corporation. Eric, Tim, welcome back to the show. Happy to be here, Albert. Yeah, it's great to be here, Albert. All right, Eric, we'll start with you. In case someone didn't hear about your last episode, and if, even if they did, you've now changed roles. You were at Conga, now you're at CSG. Give us a quick update on you know what you do at CSG and you know also what is CSG in case someone out there doesn't know. Yeah, so so CSG is a company that provides software and services to help companies engage and connect with their customers and monetize those relationships. So under that umbrella, I'm responsible for the digital engagement part of that solution to help companies drive differentiated experiences with their customer. So Think about in a company, folks that are worried about things like customer satisfaction, churn, net promoter score. So this is typically a chief marketing officer, an experience officer, and their teams. So they typically turn to us when they say, hey, you know, I'm responsible for all these metrics, but I don't know quite how to move the needle on them, especially because this crosses so many boundaries. And all the stuff that I had to drive a great experience in a physical channel, it doesn't exist in a digital channel, or if it does, it doesn't exist well, and I can't do things at, at scale. And we've tried some stuff in this area before, but we really haven't gotten great results. So how we can go through and help them and, and think of something like a, a customer retention scenario. So by the time you get to a point where, Albert, you're cutting up a credit card, or you're cutting off your cable subscription, or you're just not using a product and service anymore, it's too late. You can't put the pen back in the churn grenade after it's already gone off. Yeah. However, you can use things like a customer data platform or journey map mapping and analytics to see what were all the things that led up to that point? Who's a retention risk and why? 
And then on top of that, you can use things like journey orchestration and real-time decisioning to go through and say, hey, for Albert, what's the best save treatment to apply at a particular point in time in context? So if you're calling up, you know, something about your bill, that's probably not the best time to renew you. Let's get you <laughs> sorted and happy, and then we'll look at doing something for you. And then the third piece of that is how do you do these um, things digitally at scale in the channel of choice? Because for Albert, you just don't pick your phone up. <laughs> you see a number on there. It's like yeah. somebody, most people don't anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's like some warranty <laughs> renewal or some other random thing. You're not going to pick that up but you're going to respond to a text so, or you know, a virtual assistant on a website. So there's a number of applications that, that we provide in there. So that's basically what we do in my area of the business around the digital experience part of that equation. Well, I can tell you that when I did leave my cable company, the cable company I had, uh, it was at the time, it's I'll say it's fine, Time Warner Cable, which got acquired by Spectrum. I can tell you that they did not have your services because sure enough, when you go to cancel, you go through the phone trees and then there's always someone that wants to offer you a great rate, great rate. All of a sudden, there's a great rate available. This wasn't available to me when I was a customer, but now I can have a great rate if I stay. But yeah, I agree with you completely wholeheartedly. I could see it like when I'm my mind's already on cancel. You ain't going to bring me back. Yeah. And Albert, it's insulting at that point. <laughs> See, that, that that's what you're relating about the experience. Not just that you left, but your detractor at this point, because it's like, guys, read the room. Like the time to do this was a few months ago. <laughs> Amen to that story. I, I, I live it as well, Albert. So uh, I agree with you on the, uh, on, the, on the cable side. Yeah. Once I'm my, once my mind's out, I'm out. Like you can't bring me back because like you just said, Eric, if you're withholding a gift, well, now I know you weren't going to give it to me. Like You were basically hoping I was just going to pay for whatever what I was paying until I needed it. So I feel like you're deceiving me. <laughs> well, not you personally, the, the company. And Albert, how much did they spend to get you as a customer? I have no idea. An inordinate amount of money to get you. I have no idea. <laughs> well, it, trust me, having done a lot of business with cable companies, they spend <laughs> inordinate amounts to get you in and get you locked in that contract. So the great news and the silver lining about this is it's a solvable problem. There's stuff out there today that can can help solve that. So Yeah, well, as a consumer, I hope whatever you're offering, I hope it picks up because yeah, everyone can use a little bit more service. Tim, give our audience a little picture in case they didn't hear your episode. What is NCR and what do you do there? I said before in our last episode, I think everyone in the world is probably using NCR machine, whether you know it or not. Um, I think you have one, like I said, 100% market penetration in the United States. I'll just speak for us, but uh, go ahead and tell us what you got. What is NCR and what do you do there? Yeah, I, I always love that uh, that quote from me, Albert. Uh, I use it often uh, with 100% penetration for, for consumers across the U.S. Uh, so NCR, 137-year-old uh, company. I'm the chief technology officer here. I'm responsible for all things software that interact kind of the consumers interact with across three industries, banking, restaurants, and retailers. And so if you think about a digital banking app on your phone, um, if you start thinking about online grocery ordering, online food ordering at a restaurant, you think about going to an ATM, self-checkout at like a Whole Foods, that's all technology that MCR builds to really help our, our customers, banks, restaurants, and retailers better serve their consumers. So we like to think of ourselves as a software and services company that runs that software in the cloud or in the restaurant, in the store, in the bank branch to uh, help our customers um, transact uh, and really help us all as consumers across the globe, you know, interact in a daily basis with some form of, of monetary value. And since our last talk, uh, Albert, 
we actually bought a crypto company. So uh, <laughs> now we're cash to crypto and everything in between. So uh, we've been doing some exciting things here at NCR around the future of commerce and the future of financial services as well. Yeah, we had right before, or excuse me, I think we had the interview and you said it was coming, but it actually hadn't come yet because you're like, by the time this is released, it'll be here. It's like you had just announced a partnership, I believe, with Sheets to allow people to use cryptocurrency to purchase gasoline and as well as snacks and stuff yep. at uh, Sheets gas stations, which are, I believe they're primarily in the Northeast. We have, or they're primarily on the East. I don't see too many in the West, but uh, for those of you guys that are listening. Yeah, no, you're right. Primarily uh, Northeast, East Coast. Uh, yeah, and we've gone even further than that with uh, actually buying a company called Liberty X. So we can actually allow people to have a digital wallet, transact, uh, buying crypto, transferring crypto cross border, uh, there's some really cool stuff there. So, uh, yeah. so NCR, 137-year-old company, reinventing ourselves uh, every day. Yeah, there you go. And, if, and Tim did not name these, but uh, if you go to an ATM, it's probably an NCR machine. If you buy groceries and you're using that self-checkout scale, that's an NCR machine. So these guys are everywhere. And then Tim taught me in the last episode that when you purchase sometimes online, you know, we might think of Stripe as the number one payments processor, but it could be an NCR on the back end too. So you guys are everywhere. Eric, awesome having you guys both on the show. You know, today's topic, we wanted to bring you guys together because you guys are building and building customer-centric applications, both of you, right? Customer-centric, thinking about customers, how they interact. But at the same time, you're building these things in an environment where it's, we now have gone hybrid. I don't think there's any point in talking about like is remote or yeah, hybrid's here to stay, right? You're like, so we'll just say hybrid's here to stay. Yes, it is. Right. This is not going away. So, you know, what we'd love to hear a little bit is like, what's been working for you? Uh, we want to talk about this conversation is what's been working for you and where do you see opportunities to help yourselves? Because one of the things that a lot of our guests lately have been on and you've seen it on the news is this idea of the great resignation that there's more people than ever that are now changing jobs too so it's like you guys are building great application services but at the same time you need better tools to support hybrid environments to keep people good people right because good people are now more options than ever you know i'll start with eric you know talk a little bit about what it means to, for the employee side like what is it that you guys are doing that you think you're doing well and what do you think is like opportunities for growth because this is where i think every tech leader is in right now it's like they know that they have to accommodate for this because if they can't someone else will <laughs> yeah so so albert when we talked last i was working i won't name the cities for people don't kind of understand the geography of the bay area but what they will understand is i was commuting 3 hours a day Hour and a half up, hour and a half back. I was doing the math on this, three hours a day, four days a week, four weeks a month, 12 months a year, 576 hours. That's 24 days in my car. And so I look at what I could do with that 24 days. I can learn a language. I can spend more time doing work, like have better work-life balance, not be burnt out. So I think that first piece of employers looking at this as, hey, do we need to tether someone in a physical office? Forget about COVID, forget about whatever else. We'd like the employee to have that time. And that's a perk of coming and working for the company, being able to go through and do that remote. And CSG has a great policy uh, around this. It's hybrid and the employee can go through and, and choose. So this is one piece that I think is working great that companies are now looking at it and not even the most innovative ones, but everybody around, hey, you know what? There's probably a better way, way to do this. I think also a lot of the infrastructure and tools that may have been experimental for some innovative companies are now much more prevalent around, you know, just what we're on with Zoom and Teams and 
virtual whiteboarding and a lot more of these digital tools to go through and interact. I think for companies, what they're still trying to get a better handle on is that physical interaction and that sense of camaraderie and the meeting in between the meeting. How do you go through and create those bonds? And doing that exclusively digitally, I'm not going to lie, is a bit tough. What I have found is that, you know, I've been in my role at CSG for probably plus or minus seven months at this point, And I have, you know, gone through and traveled and, and been different places. What I have found is when people are face-to-face, those meetings are way more productive. I don't see people with laptops popped and going through and, you know, doing email and the rest of it because this is their... This is their thing where they get to meet through the the rest of the team. So I think over time, you kind of get your system worked out for that, how you kind of bridge that digital piece. I think some of it is going more out of your way for those face-to-face interactions. And then also being able to go through and figure out what sort of mandatory breakpoints do you need to go through and do? Because I don't know about you guys, but like doing the dusk till dawn on Zoom, like that just fries my brain. So I think... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <laughs> people will come up with those logical breakpoints better over time. You know, Eric, if I can just chime in, I think it's well stated as to what do we do for that, that meeting between meetings, right? The, the in-person stuff. So we're doing an MCR. I'd be curious to hear what you're doing is as people are flexible and have a hybrid work model, we're encouraging the teams that work together to try to kind of self-organize. So you don't have it. So we got 30,000 employees. I don't want 30,000 different hybrid work schedules Try to put them in, <laughs> try to put them in a, in a team structure so that they, they get the value and the benefit of if they're in the office, their teams with them as well. They get that in-person interaction. They get that management, mentorship, coaching, et cetera. And then they can use all the collaboration tools. Some that you referenced, we use Slack quite heavily as well. Uh, they can use all those collaboration tools when they're in their hybrid, you know, AKA at home or a coffee shop work model as well. So I got a question about, you know, the the chat because most people are have adopted some sort of chat feature, Slack being the most prominent. Of course, there's hip chat, there's others. Teams has chat features. How do you guys go about signal to noise problems? Because you cannot have all right. So like mission, I'll give you a good mission is under 20 employees. I think our like jovial water cooler channel is kind of annoying. Like there's too many people talking. And then we have under 20 people. I can't imagine 30,000 people like posting gifs and memes and like funny things that they saw on the internet that day. It would be mind-boggling experience. <laughs> I don't think we have a, a corporate-wide uh, public channel like that. Uh, and teams have to self-organize. So, you know, I've got my Slack actually up here in front of me right now as I'm recording this with the Albert and kind of can, can see things coming in. We're very channel-specific. Um, you know, I run a software development organization, so we've got people that are supporting those real-time transaction systems like payments, like digital banking, et cetera. That's very real. That's very focused in... You know, if you're in that channel, you're doing something, you've got to be, you know, kind of, you know, 100% on and you've got the social atmosphere, you got the direct chats, so on and so forth. I love it from a standpoint, though, that there's that search history, right? So, you know, we really use it as a productivity tool. Uh, and then, yeah, you have a little bit of fun with it as well. But I think at least we found at NCR, there's a, a, an easy balance to find on where you go have the fun and the camaraderie. And then the channels where you have the real work that, that are going to actually live for today and tomorrow and in the future. And you just got to find that delicate balance. That's what we're doing. And it seems to be working pretty well, at least for my team. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to see. And I'm not sure if you ran into this or not, Tim, but what I found is, you know, on the demographic spectrum, there's people that will gravitate more towards whether it's Slack or Teams or whatever else. 
for that as a mechanism because they just can't stand email. And then there's other folks on that spectrum that that's their, that's their jam. If it's not an email, like it, it doesn't exist. So it's like <laughs> trying to, trying to find out what's the, what's the right uh, uh, mechanism there. And, and, you know, the, the overload is real. Like I have <laughs> God knows how many channels, you know, on the, the left-hand side of the, uh, of the task bar there. And, and there's some, I heavily travel and my team heavily travels and the rest of it, like you said, Albert, the, you know, w- whatever the official water cooler is on the thing, <laughs> eh, not, not so much for me. But yeah. I, again, I think, I think over time, you know, a lot of this stuff will, will work itself out and gravitate towards one that have ones that have a greater sense of uh, not only effectiveness, but just kind of center of gravity around stuff. And it's, kind of Darwinism uh, at its finest. Yeah, I think you're right, Eric, on the demographic side. Uh, and we see it as well. Uh, and, and so then I try to set some guidelines or in my leadership team try to set some guidelines as to, hey, we're on the engineering side, right? We, we don't want to live in email. We're living in our source code repository. We're living in our site reliability engineering views. Like, like that's what we do. And so we kind of guide people towards using that in the, the collaboration tool and not email. Now, where we see the challenge at NCR is then the sales team or, uh, you know, support organizations that use other sets of tools. How do you inter- interlink those? Yes. So we've had to create those integrations to make sure that, you know, people aren't, aren't being lost in the fray of not being able to communicate because they use a different set of tools. But then how do we interact, uh, make those tools interact automatically through bots, through integrations, through other means? And so that's been one of the things that we've had to invest in so that we don't, we don't have that lost chasm between my team and other teams. Yeah, it that that struggle is real. I mean, especially with you <laughs> running the build side of the house and like, you know, developers living in HipChat. HipChat or Slack. And it's like, on the sales yeah. side, they're using Chatter and there's something else that corporate IT is trying to do. <laughs> DSG's done a pretty good job of getting people on one platform and kind of tamping that down up front. The company I came from prior, it was like, legit silos across the board and very difficult to get that uh, adoption on a common platform. Yeah, agree. Yeah. Back when I was still selling software, I remember our CEO came down and had like a very strict rule. Like, hey, you're not allowed to talk to developers. Like, <laughs> like Because because one of the things that is is a byproduct of, let's say, access. So it was here's an interesting factoid that we've learned from our different guests. And I'd love to see if this is a problem or how you guys handle it or what your thoughts are on it. In a physical space, you have a sales team and you can have your engineering team. You can actually just physically separate them. So there was no way to interact, right? And if your tool, tooling is siloed and you're physically siloed now, it's really hard, right? But we know that some of the sales guys would come over and be like, hey, where's this feature? Where's this? And you could say all you want to him. Hey, check the roadmap. He's not looking at the roadmap. He's not going to go check your Git repository and be like, where's my feature that my you know, prime customers asking, he's going right to the, he might be going to your desk, Tim, like, yo, when's it checking in? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, you, and you're laughing. Cause you know, this, it's true. You know this cause some guy manages a monster account. It's like, absolutely true. <laughs> absolutely true. Right. But like now these tools are really easy to like, kind of tag people in, like pull people in where, you know, maybe it was a little bit harder before, like, you know, and like, so there's like, I don't know if it's the right way to call is like monkey passing or passing responsibility, but like a lot of like responsibility of people over like pulling people in, like, Hey, you're responsible to me for an answer because Eric, you have the answer. I don't want to set up a meeting. I'm just going to at slack you and be like, yo, Hey, answer this question so I can close my deal or whatever it is I got to do. Right. I, I can speak well to the sales engineering side of things. 
do you see that as a potential problem or how do you guys manage and mitigate like who's responsible for what? Because accountability can be very quickly passed with open communication tools. One of the things, and we definitely saw it at the prior company that I was at, one of the things we sold was around contract management software. And one of the huge problems that companies run into is less about the tool and the technology and more about, hey, I feel better if we just throw everyone and their mother and brother in the approval chain. Yeah. And, and that, yeah. that was there before all the digital tools. It's even more so there now because it's very easy for me just to add Tim and Albert and 18 other people on that front. So I think there's a, there's a disciplined piece of that to say, you know, that you need to be careful of on the digital front because you can be creating a problem in that area and just having clear lanes of like, Hey, do these other people need to be in this loop or like, who do I go to, to get something in and done? So even on the dev side of things, Tim, it's like, look, if, you know, the, the way I would explain it to people is like a bar. <laughs> there's a point of time when the bar is open, you're taking feature requests and the rest of it. And then there's a point of time when the bar is closed. When the bar is closed, you can hit me on Slack. You can hit me up face-to-face, whatever else, like it's not going to happen or it's very <laughs> difficult to have it happen. And I think as long as a rep knows that, then they can go in with the deal and say, hey, here's the time when I have the most valuable impact. Here's what Tim's going to need to hear one way or the other to, to get him to consider it. And it seems to move more quickly. Yeah. You, you know, um, I agree with how you stated it. I think it varies by company though. So I'll take a contrarian view because NCR is a 137 year old company and you're right. They'll track us down. I would rather have them track us down, rather have them pass the monkey to make it my responsibility because for too many years, they just made it up on their own. Right? So, so, so <laughs> That's a classic sales rep. Oh yeah. Oh, next quarter, man. Next quarter. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this is the problem. So now they have no reason not to at least get the right answer. Right. And we got to tell our developers of, you know, guide them back to product management or guide them back to your management team or some executive who ultimately is responsible. But I think it's creating a sense of accountability and, and ownership, which we didn't have before, at least at NCR old company grew through acquisitions. People kind of just kept doing what they were doing, even though the process had changed in the, you know, in the factory in the software factory. And they didn't care. And so when I got here three years ago, I inherited a, well, we just got told all of this stuff. And I'm like, well, where'd it come from? And they're like, well, we don't know. We just made it up because what we always did as a startup. That's what we always did in our last company. And I'm like, no, that's not how it works anymore. Right. So, you know, I get it can create a potential problem. For us, it's solving a problem. It's solving a problem of people taking creative liberty over committing and then us under delivering and upsetting customers. So, you know, maybe I'm on the, other side, but I think it's really important for us to have that level of open transparency because ultimately it, it's going to help our customers in the long run, I feel. I mean, what you just said, I don't know if that was ever measured. Like, I know we didn't measure it. Like, we, at my last company, we didn't measure over promise, under deliver. Like, that wasn't a measurable thing. But I know, kind of like Eric, what you just talked about with uh, customer on the customer service side, I know that's not a good experience. I know that's bad, right? And so I could see your point. Like, that if you're mitigating that behavior, that's got to be a big benefit. So here we're, we're very much, I got here, I implemented say-do ratio. Like what is our say-do, be able to measure it at a per customer level, at a per product level, everything that we do has our goal and you're never going to hundred percent because if you are, you know, you're not being aggressive enough, but you better be above 80. And I'd like to be around the 90% mark and, and even higher uh, where, where possible. So we got to measure that and, and hold people accountable. And I think these tools, these collaboration tools allow us to do that in a much better way than email, at least my opinion. So- how do you measure that real quick before Eric chime in? How do you measure say do? Because I just, I made a note of that, that this is something I've not heard this mentioned before. It makes total sense. 
How do you guys measure it currently? Yeah. So, I mean, from a, from a software perspective, uh, we have two week uh, sprint commits or monthly milestone commits. We write it down. We share that, you know, you, you joked, go look at the roadmap. Well, we have a roadmap. We have it. Doc. You don't got to go to my Git repository, but we've got a roadmap by product uh, in a wiki page or, you know, in a stored document uh, in, in Confluence or Teams or whatever some of our, our, our different organizations do. And then we measure it. And I look at it and I review it every month. You said you were going to do um, X number of features and this many stories, et cetera, et cetera. How many did you deliver on? Oh, you, you missed five out of 50. Okay. So you, you had 90% delivery. Why'd you miss those? Dude, you're like a sales manager now. Yeah. This is awesome. <laughs> this is what I'm used to. Like, hey, you committed X number of dollars of pipeline. You brought in Y. It's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we take a very kind of serious view at it because it then gives us credibility with our customers of, hey, we said we we're going to do this. We did 90% of it, 95% of it. Here's why we missed the other stuff. And our customers then are like, okay, at least now we can trust uh, what, what we hear from you and have that level of expectation because they're all ba- uh, banking on us delivering something, them implementing it three months later that allows them to do a better marketing campaign. And it probably ties into some of the stuff that Eric's doing then with his tooling. Like when companies are going out and, and satisfying consumers, they have to have the features coming from, from their software. I think it all ties together. Hmm. Eric, how do you, do you guys have anything like that? Any interesting ways of how you're like handling this? Yeah, you know, it's it's a balance. I can remember um, being on a sailboat with uh, a group of friends and they let me steer at a certain point. And I, have, I know nothing about sailing. And one of the guys that we were with said, I'm like, how do you do this? Because I'm going all over the place. He's like, of course, you're going to go all over the place, but you need to pick a point on the horizon and you need to lock onto that. You won't be able to go straight. You go left and right. But, you know, eventually, as long as you're going there, and I think it's a struggle between being open and transparent and taking all orders at the bar, knowing you don't have enough liquor to go through and, and do versus <laughs> setting expectations on, on, on what you can actually do. What I've found is helping people understand where kind of where the laws of physics are and where they're going to have a better chance of getting something in helps shape things upstream by setting customer expectations accordingly. And from a customer perspective, they want to know, hey, am I asking for something impossible that the rep is going to tell me yes and somebody in dev is going to tell me yes, but there's no way in hell you're ever going to deliver. And then I'm going to look like an idiot down the line, like help me know the difference between me being kind of aggressive and getting something out of the vendor versus something that's not going to work for, for anyone. So it's a balance. And you know, I had a mentor tell me a long time ago, like anything in the, the product or dev area, like if... If you wanted to win a popularity contest, like that's not the role to go. <laughs> that's not the role to go into because eventually, you know, you're either going to be pissing off the development crew, or you're going to be pissing off the sales reps or the customers. And you know, it's keeping the the impact. And I think this is where Tim was going, kind of that orienting to that north star. You might go left and right, but as long as you know you keep your eye on the prize, you're going to hit it eventually. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things that we found with software or tech companies specifically is that when you think about for most things, when you get service, right, let's say like uh, you're going to service your car or you're going to get a house built, whatever, or what, you know, a lot of things that we do, we kind of in our minds have a general time frame of how long that's going to take. And so the customer comes in with this expectation, like if it's in this window that you tell me you're going to build a pool for me and it's going to be done in 60 days, ah, that sounds about right. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know. I, yeah. I'm just based on my neighbors. Right. But when it comes to software and features, I mean, you probably, I think you'll agree with me. I think most customers think you just, 
hit a hammer a couple lines of code, Tim, and it's done, right? Like, what are we talking about? It takes months. <laughs> yeah. Here's the blessing and the curse of everything that's happened over the last couple of years and acceleration of digital transformation or whatever buzzword you, you want to uh, uh, say. Yeah. We've been spoiled as consumers of a handful of brands that really, really gotten this right. And so because they got it right, we don't understand why that just can't apply to everything else from an oil change to getting <laughs> stuff out of the dev factory or whatever else. So it's really forced a larger group of companies to up their game in what they do in their traditional business. And all they may never be an Uber or an Amazon or, or whatever else, they need to up that game. Now, what, what complicates this is if you look at somebody Uber, for example, it's like, man, they just, you know, they know me, they know who I am, where I'm at, what I'm going to need. It's like super great that I get to use through, you know, a mobile app, but I know people at Uber and I have a ton of respect for it. And it's fantastic. They've really struggled when it's come to getting in additional channels, like for people that, you know, not so much on the app, like you go into an office, like retail locations that, you know, Tim, that's their bread and butter on NCR, which is a hugely important part of things like it, no retail location, try and call somebody up over the phone for somebody that's not more comfortable going through and chatting, like good luck on that one way or the other. And even, you know, I was, I was talking with some folks the other day about, you know, the telephony piece of Amazon. I'm like, you know, what's people's experience been? And somebody said, you know, oh, you know, it wasn't that good. I'm like, what are you talking about? You were able to find an 800 number on Amazon's web? Like, you know, give, give you a sticker and a, you know, and a, and a power bar. Like, that's great. So I think as part of this, and, you know, one of the other things I'd say on the retail channel, so we have a, we have a report we, we publish every year called, you know, State of the Customer Journey. And it goes through and looks at, you know, out in the industry, what are the trends and the rest of it? Oddly enough, through COVID, one of the big things that we saw is a spike in retail business. More people were going to retail locations and we're like, what? That doesn't really make sense. Like, why wouldn't everything just be e-commerce and only that component? And a big part of this was being able to get stuff online and then go into the retail location to get things done there. So some of the use cases you were talking about earlier you know, an ATM machine or a kiosk or a self-checkout or whatever else, that's a huge part of this because even for folks like Amazon, like, okay, next day delivery, or I can, you know, get it at an hour by going into a retail location. So I think that's a really important part of uh, the equation here. That's general behavior. Yeah. Yeah. I think the challenge really is how do you give that omni-channel experience? And that's another one of these buzzwords that's been around for a while, right? And we almost hate to use it, but yeah, I mean, we have to be able to meet consumers where they want to be met, when they want to be met, and how they want to be met. And that's just plain and simple. And, and that goes for at least in NCR's world, retail, banks, and restaurants. But it goes in anything that we do. You brought up, you know, uh, go and get your car serviced. You need to go into an auto parts store and get a new fan belt for do-it-yourself, you know, fixing your, your, uh, your fan belt at home or changing a battery, whatever it is. You want to have that experience on your terms and in the model that you want. And so, and we're dealing with, you know, how many, you know, hundreds of millions of people across the US and then billions across the globe and demographics, location, you know, all the things that matter change that. And so when people think this should be easy, yeah, it can be easy on one 
you know, kind of micro thread through the process. Yeah. But it's not always easy when it comes to, you know, we're trying to satisfy, you know, a hundred million people that are going to touch this, you know, multiple times across 20 countries in the next six months. And so, you know, I think that's a, it's the fun thing, at least in the job that I sit in, but then how do we enable consumers to understand that? How do we enable our employees to recognize that's what they're building. They're not building something that's just for one user or one demographic in one state, but you're building something that's going to be used globally. All those things build up into it. And the more we can be aware of that, I think is super important for us as leaders and super important for us as technology providers. So let's dive into that next wave because you guys have hit at it. This acceleration or this desire to have things done faster is never going to stop on the consumer level, whether it's like you said, a ride, whether it's getting an auto part to on a consumer level, hey, I am a multi-billion dollar retailer, Tim, and I need you to build, I need you to check in this feature for these machines. I'm going to assume you can just do this tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> that expectation is never going away. What do you guys feel like you need? So we, we kind of know the tooling of today of what you guys are leveraging to build your teams and deliver for your customers. What tools are the next things that you need? Or maybe you guys can Maybe we don't know the tools, but you guys can define the problem that you'd like solved because uh, you're rolling your eyes because there's a lot of, like, I need a lot of things solved. <laughs> let's, let's start with you. Sorry, Tim, what do you need solved for you? Like, if you're like, hey, if you're an engineer out there, solve this for me. Like, what do you need to go even faster, better for the customer? So I'll, I'll give you two answers. One on the, I'll say the engineering side, what do we need solved? We need to have more ubiquity of interoper or ubiquity and interoperability between some of the technologies. Yeah. Right. Uh, over time, you know, uh, I grew up in an era where it was highly open source, highly coopetition. Uh, we're doing still some of that today, but I also see bifurcation coming in how some of the big tech providers. So I partner with Google and Microsoft, you've got Amazon, you've got IBM, you've got Salesforce, you've got others. Can we really continue to work in an interoperable way? Right. Cause at the end of the day, no one's ever going to have, one stack that's all from one company, you know, we, we can't afford to be tightly integrated and tightly coupled. Same thing goes with the business that I, as I build software, they're not going to use everything from NCR. They're going to use some NCR. They're going to use some of our competition. They're going to find startups, et cetera. And so I think we really need to make sure as technologists and as leaders in the industry around digital, you know, Eric said it uh, as a bit of a buzzword, digitally transforming how we interact, whatever you want to think about, we need to do a better job of that interoperability and ensuring that's all working. So that's kind of on the technology side. The other side is we have lots of companies that, that, that like you said, I get calls every day from multi-billion dollar uh, down to just tens of millions uh, in, in revenue customers, but they all think they're they're the most important customer. Uh, and, and, <laughs> and we try and treat them like they're all the most important, but then they also have to understand as they want to evolve, they might have to change some of their business processes, right? And I think that's something that is lost at times. That's true. It's lost that they just want us to build everything. And as you build more and more, it adds more complexity. And then you, it's a hard time to maintain it and it might break in the future. And so if people want to go fast, they also need to look at how they can optimize their own processes to go faster as well and not just rely on their vendor or their partner, or their technology provider. Because um, those two things go hand in hand. Business process at the company level and technology provider providing resources to that uh, to that company. I agree. If you cater to the fringe, you will always be in trouble. We we are having that pain inside of mission right now as we expand our shows and you know we got to add producers. 
So we're like telling producers, hey, you're going to have to start standardizing how you do it. Each producer like, no, I want to do things my way. I'm like, hey, we're not going to have independent projects all the time. It's a challenge. It's just a different problem, right? It's just a different problem. Yeah. Eric, I didn't know like what, what tooling or what things do you need to exist for you to, you know, in your teams to move faster, better, more efficiently for your customers? Kind of turn this around and, and think of value that we deliver for our customers. What problems do we need to solve for them? And then kind of work backwards from there of tools that I need to help make these statements true. So I think of the first piece of being able to give them better results and tying what we're doing to a metric and showing that. So I talked about some things earlier, yeah. net promoter score, churn, different pieces of where they can connect the dots and visualize, visualize it in the product and help show that they're getting value out of this and, and connect dots. So a lot of that is around analytics, visualization, dashboarding and the democratization of data versus, hey, it's in the hands of two people in the back office. This is one. The second piece is around time to value. So I think of a lot of the appetite of, you know, however many years ago of this, you know, multi-year implementation that's a zillion dollars. And, you know, if you think of a CIO in a company, like, they have an expiration date on them like milk. So oh, yeah. <laughs> if they can't, if they can't not only get something within a fiscal year, but get a result within 90 days up and running and say, hey, we did this so they can continue with the project, that's just not going to fly. So I think of a lot of things that we do related to low and no code system, much more SaaS versus an army of people on a bus that need to go through and do customization and kind of the Accenture model. This is another block. The last piece is around lower risk. So again, this view of, hey, we have you know, the winning lottery ticket, but you need to rip out everything that you've spent the last 20 years and however many million dollars putting in, that's not going to fly either. There's some decisions that folks have made from a technology perspective that's going to stick around forever. So a lot of more API, more service-oriented architecture, more how can you build these components to play well with the other kids in the sandbox, so to speak. So if I look at how we architect our products and how we do go to market and the lens of as we're going through and building stuff, it's not just that you know the rep asks for something or a customer asks for something. How does it go through those three filters um, and hit one or multiple of those? And what I've found is that drives us crazy internally. <laughs> However, when it comes to going back to the customer and showing value and helping them show value to their customers and who they have to answer to, it's been a really helpful filter. So what I've gathered from both of your, both the things you guys just both said is I'm predicting then possibly a rise of middleware tools. Uh, so you already have Zapier, you already have MuleSoft, because you both con you both hinted at it, which is like tools need to be able to interoperate together better. And you mentioned low code. I agree where you maybe not need so many developers to build this together, because right now, as you know, it's like two tools, they both can have APIs, but like to make anything functional, like you have to possibly have a developer take data from product A, data from product B, drop it into database C. You probably need like HashiCore to spin up two servers across two services. So like HashiCore, Terraform, that goes across services. Zapier connects applications. MuleSoft connects applications. It's probably going to be, a because if you're saying this is still a gap, because I think a lot of these tools can do a lot of things, it sounds like there's much more to do. <laughs> yeah. So what what we've, and, and particularly in the the area that we're in, we have a lot of customers come through and say, yeah, yeah, we've got one of those. 
we implemented one of those things. And then when you kind of peel that back, you're like, eh. it's like you, you have the tool in a tool in the toolbox, but it, it's not solving your problem. And so the example, I think customer data platform is a great example of, of this. And even decisioning is a great example of this. It's like all the breadcrumbs are there. They're all there, but they're locked up in four five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten different systems. Yep. If you think for a call center rep, for example, on their desktop, they have an average of 20 to 25 applications. Maybe some of them are from the same vendor, but at least half of them aren't. And they have all those breadcrumbs to be able to pull in and understand Albert Chu is a Chu and your misspelled name Chu and this website tracking and, and the rest of it. So where I'm going with it, you know, you'll look at it and, and Concepts as simple as like, yeah, we need a workflow tool or, you know, we need a database where we can have customer information or we need some middleware. It's like, yes, and I think what you'll see is a lot more purpose-built applications that stitch together these, these different parts that are much more focused around solving a specific problem. Yeah, and I agree with what Eric just said, and I love how he said data democratization, you know, as well. And that goes to my view of integration, right? And so I think we're I think as you brought us together, Albert, said a lot of the same things. Um, I agree there's going to be some of those fit-for-purpose apps or solutions that are built. And then it goes back to the second point I was making around to build those and to build them with speed. Um, some companies are going to need to adjust their model so they can go faster. We can go build something for them, custom, proprietary, uh, exactly how they want to see it. Or we can use something off the shelf that's fit for purpose for 80%. And then we tweak the last 20% and they'll get there three months faster, six months faster than they would have if they held to their, you know, 122 requirements that are all custom to (laughs) whatever their, whatever their company is, whatever their product offering is. So. I feel some personal pain in that statement. So (laughs) a lot of of personal pain in that statement, but, uh, but yeah, it, it, technology is moving so quickly right now that, you know, asking what we need or how we're going to need it, I think it's interesting. I think we have, a, you know, Eric and I both have a lot of great ideas. A lot of people do. One thing I think we both probably would agree on, or I'll, I'll say for me, I'll be interested if Eric does as well, that what we say today and what we think today will be different eight months from now, right? Or we'll be evolved eight months from now because we'll have eight months more of, of insight and knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. And something to, uh, to get your take on as well, Tim, um, kind of under the democratization of data standpoint, I think the extent to which build organizations leverage product analytics and the quantitative things of, yeah, yeah, they just didn't ask to have it built. Who's using it? Where have they onboarded? Where's the friction? What's getting traction and what isn't to provide not a silver bullet, but another filter to go through and and really understand who's getting value out of what. I know within CSG, we use we use product analytics and we use some of our own uh, dog food or champagne or whatever the analogy is, so to speak, to kind of understand journeys as people go through our products. Is that something that you guys have been uh, uh, using as well, Tim? Yeah, we're, we're using that uh, quite readily from the design phase all the way through the delivery phase to watch uh, user behaviors, uh, to analyze uh, their behaviors, uh, you know, uh, look, look, when they get rage clicking, right? All the way from uh, when, when they're buying their groceries or buying their, they're ordering their food online to have delivered, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then all the way down to transaction level details. Like how can we help 
merchants uh, or banks better serve their consumers by looking down at at, at that transaction level detail. So I love the data concept because we're all consumers in the world. We all probably have a bank uh, or even if you're unbanked now, but you have a digital wallet for digital assets and you're using those types of resources at a restaurant or a retailer, we can start to help those restaurants or retailers better serve those consumers if we can share that data back. And then we always get into, well, is it your data? Is it my data? My view is it's the consumer data. So the consumers can control who they share the data with. And if we can build, you know, data platforms where consumers share their data with their trusted merchants, their trusted banks, their trusted providers, it's a way for all of us then to almost monetize our our own perspective on that data, uh, which I think would fit really well into some of the platforms that I've been learning about as I knew I was going to talk to you today and talk with you today that CSG offers. So I think data is going to be the heart of all of it. I know that's probably overused cliche as well, but consumers providing that data in for themselves will be a lot of benefit moving forward. Yeah. And and to dovetail into that, we've definitely seen the whole privacy component related to customer data and how that's handled. And, you know, to start with, it, it was like this complete swing in one direction of you can't know anything about me, everything anonymized. But think back through to some times where you do want to know, you do want them to have that data because as a consumer, there's something that you get back from that. So my example that I give around this is with Amazon Prime. So, you know, I buy just about everything through Amazon, get something from them that says, hey, uh, do you realize you paid 250 bucks last year in expedited shipping charges? Because I always leave everything to the, uh, the last minute. And uh, they said, you know, Prime is 99 bucks. You could save, you know, 150 and you get all this other stuff. And I was like, well, that's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I'll be a, a Prime customer. And thank you for telling me that's great. Instead of just let me continue to, to go through and pay, I'd gladly give up the information in, in that front. Think of what you go through with content services and you know recommendations that you get back from Hulu or Netflix or whatever else because you liked these particular things. So I think it's not that customers don't want to give it up. They don't want it to be abused. And I think for the companies that understand where that line is, can be very transparent around it and show value. I think the leverage of that data, like you're talking about, Tim, has great, great potential in a better experience for customers and also a better experience for the companies that are able to monetize that. Yeah, you're right. You know, use Amazon Prime as an example. I'll use the example that I like to use with our customers that combine kind of restaurants and retailers together. I do a lot of shopping at Publix, great customer of ours. I also go to Chipotle a lot. I go to Dunkin' Donuts. I go to Starbucks, et cetera, et cetera. I want to share what I'm buying, what my preferences are at a Chipotle or a Morton Steakhouse, you know, or, or these things back with my grocery store. So they're able to then promote to me things that I like based on my other d- daily buying habits, the type of coffee that I like, whatever it might be. And if I can monetize that through, I'm going to get a 5% discount or a couple of cents off tortillas and my favorite type of, you know, taco sauce or seasoning because of what I'm buying at Chipotle, you know, that's where I think it can be really valuable for the consumer. And then people aren't going to be as worried, as you said, about privacy, because if they're seeing value back for them from their trusted brands, they'll opt in more. So um, another example for the, for the listeners uh, from a different perspective, but uh, very similar to what you said with the Amazon Prime model. Listen, the number one industry that needs to share data is healthcare by far. 
like I've, I've said this, we've all used it on the consumer level, but like we all also are consumers of healthcare and healthcare is one of the most siloed business, like in terms of services that we use, it is absolutely the most siloed, right? You go to a new doctor, if any of you have kids, like the amount of paperwork you have to fill out is astronomical. <laughs> it gets to the point where, and I know, because I think some of you have done it probably, you just assume the answer is no, because there's too many questions. Like, has your child ever, you're like, no, just, just fill it all the way down. The amount of data that they, but the amount of outcomes that could be improved if they could share, I think would be significant. Oh yeah. Didn't you just fill out that paperwork a month ago? You're like, I was here to this office a month ago. Why do I have to go through and do this out again? And then God help you when you go to a pharmacy. So actually a lot of the work that we've done in the healthcare industry and specifically with that tie with retail pharmacies and these guys, you know, they're going through an existential crisis of, hey, I'm going to get Amazon. So if I look at who's done great on the customer experience front, especially through COVID, retailers other than Amazon. So if you think of going into, well, you know, like a, a CVS, who's, who's one of our customers around not just stuff that you can get on the website, but curbside pickup, how you get reminders around uh, prescriptions of something that's available versus going through and sitting there. Everything that they've done with the COVID vaccines and you know getting that set up and going in and, and QR codes, how they translate that into loyalty programs. So I think with all of this stuff, it's a journey. But I think a lot of industries are looking at this now saying, hey, like you said in the healthcare example, as a doctor's office, I am not the only game in town. There's a bunch of other ways to do this. You know, I have huge insurance premiums. I've got real estate, but I, everything else, if I don't up my game up, on the experience that I deliver to my customers that do have a choice now, it's an existential crisis for them. So I think as consumers, we benefit from that smaller group of brands that help you know, up the game of, of uh, the rest of these companies that you go through and interact with. There it is. Well, listen, gentlemen, I appreciate you both joining us today, talking about how you guys are approaching these problems, how you guys are building your own teams to solve for, uh, solve for building faster, better. I love the ideas of, hey, Basically, people have to think more consciously. I think it starts there. Like, get to think more consciously that you want to solve the problem versus like kind of like what you were as well all talk about. Like, if you're trying to hold on to the way things were, that's actually that's the number one way to fail. Anytime you're trying to latch on to what you used to do, uh, that's a bit of a problem. And I know it's scary, right? Because people are like, I don't want a new technology to do a new process. I want my old process, Tim. Can you build me something for my old process? Or Eric, you're like saying, hey, I want to connect these two data points. So your customer service can be like, now I got to look at another thing. Like, oh man, I don't know. Right. So any anytime you're trying to hang on to the old guard, you're already probably setting yourself back a little. Well said. Yeah, no, I, I agree. So let's uh, let's keep uh, keep driving forward and uh, drive and change. There it is. Thank you both for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thanks everyone for tuning in.